Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. It's good to have you here. Uh, If you're visiting, you're new here. My name is Matthew. I'm the pastor here on the east side, and it's wonderful to have you here with us. I hope you can find your way into the life here uh, on the east side. The best way to do that um, is to stop at that table on the way out and meet some people who would love to introduce you to this church. And we have, like Beth said, a lot of things going on this week that'll be really fun, safe, you know, low-risk sort of entry points to come and hang out and and meet some new people. Hope you'll join us for that. We are starting a new season this week, and that may be like uh, something that that doesn't mean a whole lot to a number of you in here, uh, but I want to just take a minute and set up the season of Lent because um, this is a really big deal for us in the church. And here on the east side, and, and it's also a week, this is kind of like, because Lent starts on a Wednesday, we start thinking about it on the Sunday before because we're preparing uh, to begin it together on, on Wednesday. So this might be your very first time ever doing Lent. You, you might not be from a church that has practiced this, or you may be a new Christian. This may be your first year where you're actually going through the liturgical seasons with us. Or you may not even be a Christian, but you just kind of like this stuff and you enjoy doing it with us and it, it, it's meaningful for you. And regardless, like whatever you bring into this season, whether it's your first or your 50th time, uh, I, I just want to give you a sense of like how we can practice Lent with one another. Lent is a season that is meant to actually strip away excess in our life. It's meant to remove clutter. It's meant to slow us down. It's a season where we intentionally choose to remove um, things that we run to for comfort and for escape. Uh, we do this because we're, we're looking to kind of uh, get into a very simple posture where we can be still enough and quiet enough to hear God. Where the things that are inside of us that maybe we try to keep hidden most of the year, they kind of begin to leak out a little bit. As uh, Chris McDaniel, the lead pastor on the West Side, says, you know, when we're uncomfortable, we get squeezed, and when we're squeezed, stuff comes out. Uh, And that is what Lent does. It squeezes us, and stuff comes out. And it's not a very pleasant experience, but it's a very necessary and good thing. And and I I imagine I probably don't have to convince you of that, to know that, like, actually the stuff that we spend most of our uh, life running from actually needs to eventually come out and be healed and be exposed because it's actually through that that we can become new people, new creations. And so Lent is a season where we sort of intentionally engage in some practices that are going to make it a little bit more uncomfortable for us for that purpose, not just simply because we enjoy being uncomfortable. Now, for what a number of years, I've done Lent, I don't know how many years, probably 15 years now I've been, I've been trying to follow this season. And every year I've done something super Protestant. I have, I have approached it with a very individualistic eye. Like, what is it that I need to do? How do, I, how do I fast this year? What is God doing in my life that it would make sense for me to remove from my life in order to more fully follow him? And that's a super, I think that's a, that's a good, commendable, laudable approach to to Lent, and I'm not, I'm not knocking it, but uh, we came across an article recently. Our diocese released an article from a local Atlanta priest, a guy named uh, Father Greg Goebbels. I think I'm saying his name right. And he said, um, what's that? Goebbels, thank you. Uh, <laughs> this, this has been Audience Participation Sunday, so it's very <laughs> exciting. Uh, who knows what's going to happen next? Um, so we, we have, um, his, his article is just, it's, it basically is saying, like, instead of doing the thing that we do, as Americans, and personif- you know, personalizing and, and making it independent and individualistic, what if we just chose this year to do the thing that's always been done for a long time by millions of people before us and just put ourselves squarely in the stream of Lenten practices that have been practiced by your forefathers and foremothers? 
And here, at least on the east side, our staff's been kind of really taken with this idea. And we've all decided, yeah, I think this is what we're going to do this year. Not that it's not also good to maybe have something particular or peculiar if you feel like God's laying that on your heart. But I just wanted to give you a sense of like some handrails to follow. If you don't know what to do for Lent, this is what we're going to do, at least what I'm going to do. Here's a traditional Lent. This is how it goes. You fast on Ash Wednesday from at least one meal. So that's this Wednesday. So pick a meal. Um, we read the Bible a lot. We read the church fathers and the church mothers. I'm not saying you can't read other stuff, but we actually intentionally focus our, our reading on spiritual things. We read a lot of the Bible. So you follow the daily uh, office, that reading plan on the back of your flyer that we give every week. Uh, maybe just start with the Gospels and begin to read through a Gospel. If you've never read any of the Bible before, just pick the Gospel of Mark, for example, and just work your way through the Gospel of Mark over the season of Lent. We give up sugar and alcohol, except on Sundays. That's like a real rub for a lot of us. But that's, we give up sugar and alcohol, and we just choose to like not indulge in things that we normally would at, you know, at the end of the day or throughout the day. Um, we give away extra money to help the poor. Probably all that money that you were spending on sugar and alcohol, you can now just give that away. Uh, and volunteer your time to visit and assist the sick the prisoner or the outcast. So we become more intentional in just looking at those outside of us who are marginalized, who are, who are on the fringes, who need support and need help. You know, maybe you know it's like it's always going to be that person at the top of the highway overpass right before you're, you know, you're, you're getting off the highway. It's like you just begin to become intentional and think like, what could I do to have eyes that are wide open to suffering all around me so that I'm, I'm actively participating in God's care for those um, who sort of are, are pushed outside of, of the frame a lot of times. And then finally, on Good Friday and Holy Saturday, uh, traditionally the church fasts for those two days, which is a big deal. I know some of us have never fasted for more than a meal, if, if even that. And, and there's always stipulations in the church code where it's like, you know, if you're pregnant or if you're young or if you're old or if you're middle-aged or you're any of those, like maybe, maybe you don't fast for two days. Um, last year, my... Uh, high-achieving uh, daughters um, decided they were going to fast, and by the end of Holy Saturday, they were, actually were sick. So it's like, don't, don't push yourself to a place that's unhealthy. Listen to your body, know yourself, but stretch yourself a little bit. Try a little bit. Like, and just, in, in, I like how Goebel says it. He's like, don't, don't pick from it. Don't, don't piecemeal it. Don't modify it. Just, just do it. Just, do, just become one of, and this is, this is something I think we all could stand to do, just become one more person in a very, very long train of people who have done a certain thing and let God work through it. And don't, don't try to be inventive, just participate in anything and let God do it. So I just wanted to let you know, at least that's what we're going to be doing as we gather. We'll have, we're going to have uh, workshops throughout, on Thursdays throughout uh, Lent, uh, or Mondays I think it is actually, uh, where we can be contemplative and read the scriptures with one another and there'll be various things that we're doing together. But as far as like what we're doing when we're not together, this is what I'll be doing. This is what a number of us will be doing. And I thought that might be helpful uh, for you as we begin this season with one another on Wednesday morning. Um, We are going to be reading from the book of Matthew today, chapter 17, the first nine verses of that. And so if you want to follow along with me, I'm going to read... I'm going to read this story from the Gospels, and then we're going to pray, and we'll see what God has for us as we end this season of Epiphany with each other, and as we begin the season of Lent, we look forward to it. So here's the story. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and, and James and his brother John, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. And suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
And while he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, the voice said, this is my son, the beloved. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this Sunday to focus our eyes on you as you really are. Lord, help us to see you. Lord, help us to see you. Not a muted version of you, not a not a picture of you that is really just our own making, but who you actually are in power and wonder and glory and goodness and strength. We ask, Lord, for open hearts. Holy Spirit, come and do what only you can. Help us to see the living Jesus, the real God. We ask these things in his name. Amen. So if you were here at the very beginning of the service, we pray every week um, prayers with one another. They're called collects, which is because they're like prayers that the collected people of God pray throughout the week. And this week's uh, collect is uh, very lovely to me. And I thought we'd begin by actually praying it with one another to align our hearts as to why we're here. So this is the collect for Transfiguration Sunday. Let's pray together. O God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain. Grant to us that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This collect gives us the, the, uh, the spirit and the heart behind this Sunday. Why the church, every single year, the last Sunday of Epiphany, the last Sunday before Lent, focuses on the transfiguration. It's because of this idea. What Jesus was doing here is he's on his way to Jerusalem, and on the way he stops and gives his closest friends a look at him that's going to give them the courage to follow him into great hardship. And as you and I begin Lent with one another, we enter into a season that's going to stretch us. We do it intentionally. We do it because we actually want to become holier, purer people. And usually the way that we become pure is through some sort of purging. So Jesus gives us a picture of himself. And the church every year stops, almost like just on the side of the road before we go on to Jerusalem with Jesus, which we will begin picking up next week. And we choose to see him as he really is, as a way of giving courage to what you and I undertake. In other words, the things that make us brave enough to look squarely in the face, the parts of us that need to change, that need to be healed, even that need to die, is seeing God as he really is. And so that's our text for today. Um, There's four movements in this passage that I want to bring out um, as we consider this uh, before we begin Lent with each other. The first is this. Jesus takes his friends away to be with them and to reveal himself to them. He wants to spend time with them. I, um, 
uh, I don't know if this is just imaginative or if it's helpful, but for me, I, get, I, I just imagine Jesus being very excited the night before this trip um, because uh, that's what I would do. If I was going away with my closest friends the next day and I had something really, really exciting to show them, something that was going to change their life forever and ever, I would be really excited about that. I would be like really thrilled to be putting snacks in a bag and thinking about like what each person likes to eat. I just imagine that Jesus, as he's preparing to take his friends away, that there's an eagerness in his spirit. I have a sense that God has an eagerness in his spirit about you right now, about what he wants to do in you, where he's taking you, what he has in store for you. Jesus takes his friends away because he wants to be able to show them who he really is. And that's a huge deal. He wants them to see him as he really is. And do you know why Jesus wants people to see him as he really is? Why God would want you to see him as he really is? Why? Is, why? It's because, I, this is kind of a deep theological thought, but it is because you were made for nothing less than that. And God is worth, no one is worth more being seen for who they are. I mean, it's just a reminder that like the reason you and I exist is because God exists and he chose to make us for himself. You and I don't exist as like separate independent narrative storylines, like on some sort of grand universe. We exist because God is at the center and he made us for himself. And there's something about seeing God as he really is in his power, experiencing the closeness and the, and the power and the goodness and the, the glory, as the Bible would say, of God, that when it happens to me, when it happens to us, and I hope I hope you know what I'm talking about. When it happens, something in my life seems to click. Like it feels like suddenly like I'm aligned. Like this is what I was made for. It's like seeing God as he really is, is actually the purpose for which I exist. Like experiencing him as God is, is why I live and breathe. It is the purpose for my life. And then, the, and then my life, therefore, the mission of my life is to express what God is like to the world around me so that others can experience what God is like. So God wants to reveal himself to you. He wants you to hear his voice. He wants you to know what it feels like to have him close. Now, I know that in a room with this many people and this many different experiences of faith, some of you know exactly what that sounds like to have God speak. You know what it feels like to have God draw close. And and others of us feel nothing or we feel frustrated by the knowledge that other people in this room would, would claim something like that or have even experienced something like that. I just want to say, like, no matter what your experience is that you're bringing in, like, I, God has more for all of us. He has more to take all of us into, further up and further in, into who he is. He wants you to know him as he really is because you were made for nothing less. And I spent so much of my life looking to find that sense of alignment and purpose and fulfillment and a thousand other things. And I spent my life so hurried and so busy trying to locate it in other places. Um, God wants to speak to you and me. And most of us do not move slow enough to, or quietly enough through life to hear him. I mean, it's just true. Most of us don't. There's a story that I've, I know I'm, I'm sure I've told here before, that, but I love it very much. Um, John Ortberg, who's a pastor who we, we, we love. He's out in, in Northern California in the Bay Area. He's at a, a Presbyterian church. But uh, where this story takes place, it's about 20 years before that. And he's at Willow Creek uh, outside Chicago, which uh, at that time, Willow Creek was the most influential evangelical church in the world. 
Um, it was like a, a superpower church, and they were just changing the, the culture of evangelicalism around the world. And John got brought in, uh, not as the lead pastor, but as just one on the teaching team, because he was an all-star author and an incredible preacher. And it was just like this ridiculous roster of people. It was like when Smoltz and Glavin and Maddox were all pitching, you know, it just like wasn't fair for anyone else. And so the, the, this, he's, he's brought in as a, as a Cy Young, and he's overwhelmed and stressed by just the magnitude of the work that's being laid on him in this huge, powerful, rapidly moving church. And he calls up his good friend, Dallas Willard. And, and if you know um, us, if you've been here, you know Dallas is one of our people who we look to to help us uh, understand the world and a philosopher from Southern California. And he calls up Dallas and he's like, Dallas, I don't know what to do. I'm overwhelmed. I'm, everything's moving so fast. I feel so busy. It's just one meeting after another, after another, and then one lecture after another, after another. And it's all really good, but I'm just, I feel my heart is shrinking up and shriveling up, and some of us know what that feels like, and he says, what should I do? And Dallas, uh, John says, Dallas takes a very long pause, like the sort of pause where you'd have to like check, like, are you still there, Dallas? <laughs> takes a long pause, and then he says very calmly, he says, John, hurry is the great enemy of your soul. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry. And John's like, oh, that's really good. Thank you so much. What else, and what else? How else should I do this? <laughs> so great. So, and, um, and he said, once again, Dallas took a long time and just thought. And he said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry. I've been thinking about that story for the last few weeks based on some podcasts I've been listening to. And I, um, I'm trying to move slower. It's very hard for me. I move very fast. I'm just always moving fast. I move fast in my house. I move fast when I'm in a car. I, I move fast through stores. I, I move fast through, through the four walls of this building. I, move, I, I walk past people. I look over people. I, I, I look at my phone. I'm, I'm, I have five things going on at once. And there's always, always, always something. There's, there's always something to do. And, and, and multitasking is so thrilling because there's always something to do while you're doing something else at the same time. I am so hurried in my whole life. How am I ever going to have space to hear the voice of God? How am I ever going to be still enough and quiet enough? How will there ever be a place of peace where God can speak in and reveal himself to me in the way that he is eager and expectant and longing to do so that I can have a word that actually begins to transform and change me? How will I ever experience that if I just continue to live at the relentless pace? Lent is an opportunity for you and me to choose slowness cut out noise, to, to move at a pace that is sustainable and to try to work it into your system enough so that maybe at the end of it, actually some of it carries into the rest of your year and it isn't just this one six-week miracle season where you slow down enough and you stop watching enough TV and you turn your phone off enough so that you can hear. It's actually meant to be a time that trains us to how to live the rest of our life because God wants to reveal himself to you. Jesus took his friends away because he desires to be known. He desires to be known by you. Now, after he takes them away, something incredible happens. He begins to shine like a star, and his clothes change, and everyone's overwhelmed by it. And when that happens, Peter does something very natural and instinctual that I can relate to a lot. He tries to contain it. He tries to contain something that's uncontainable. He tries to take an experience that he's having and put it in a box and, and make it something that's going to be like, uh, 
repeatable in some way, you know, that thing that we do where it's like, oh, God has moved in this way or he always talks through this song or this book has always touched someplace or that church sermon or that retreat and I'm just going to go back to it again and again. I'm going to keep it in a booth. I'm going to keep it sort of down and tied down in a way that I'm going to be able to return to it because then God will live there and I won't, um, I won't have to wait. I won't have to wonder if he's going to show up. Stanley Hauerwas uh, writes concerning this, this story. He says, uh, like Peter, we desire to secure in place, if not tie down and domesticate, the wild spirit of God's kingdom. We do not wish to face anew the challenges of God's presence. Peter's instinct is to hold on to. And why wouldn't? I mean, that is our instinct. When we touch heaven, when we feel like we're in the fringes of like ultimate reality, that is my instinct. How do I contain this? How do I return to this? How do I keep this where this is? But the further up and further in that you and I move into God's kingdom, the more we will discover that the, that the response that God desires and that he is working into me is a response of open-handedness and releasing God, not holding on to and con- containing him. Uh, and that's a really hard thing for me. The more that I decide to dwell in God's kingdom, the more I realize that I have less and less say because after all, I'm not the king. I have no control over God. I cannot control when he shows up. I cannot control when he works in my life. I can't control when he resolves a situation. I can't control when I feel his love. I can't control any of that. I mean, as Ginny read to us at the, uh, at the beginning of the service from Deuteronomy, Moses goes up on the mountain, and then he sits there for six days and waits for God to talk. God's like, come to the mountain. There's a cloud on the mountain. He's like, okay, well... Probably things are going to happen pretty quick once I get up there. And he gets up there, and a week passes. How many of us would have, like, on day three, like, this is, this is crazy. What am I supposed to do up here? He's not eating. He has nothing to drink. He's just stuck on a mountain waiting for God to show up for a week. Would I ever have had, like, what it took, the grit to remain in that place? God is uncontrollable and uncontainable. He's wild and free. And that's a really hard lesson that I have to learn again and again and again. I pray about something and it seems to work. And I go, oh, prayer works. And then I pray about something else and it doesn't work. And I say, prayer is a mystery. And I don't understand how it works. Because God is ultimately not under my control. He's not going to come through in a way that I'm going to go like, this is exactly what I was hoping for. He's going to come through in a way that was ultimately good and for my good. Peter tries to contain God in a way that all of us do. And what happens instead is he's rebuked for it. The glory cloud falls. We're back on Sinai. Moses is there, of course. And God is speaking. And he says, this is my son, my beloved. Listen to him. This picture is so powerful, and it would have been even more powerful if you were a first century Jew, because you would have realized that you have right in front of you Moses and Elijah, which are the embodiment of the Old Testament. Because every time Jesus talks about the Bible, he's always like, the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets. Well, the law is Moses. It's a a synonym, literally, for the law. And Elijah was the great prophet. He was the prince of prophets. He never even died. He was carried away to heaven. I mean, it's like this incredible story. He's like the greatest person ever lived sort of thing. 
And there you have Moses and Elijah and the glory cloud falls and God says to Peter and to those who happen to be standing next to him, probably moving further away from him the more God speaks, he says, this is my son, this is the beloved. This is the beloved. Listen to him. And that would have been kind of probably rattling a little bit if you were a first century Jew because you would have assumed that maybe God would have said, listen to them. I mean, after all, it's Moses and Elijah. I mean, who else to listen to? Listen to him. He's the one I want you to listen to. Not like disregard what they say. That's clear from the rest of the Bible. But like, listen to him. He is the center. He's the source. He's the top. He's the one. He is the beloved. He is my son. Listen to him. I, um, I think that that's God's word for me right now. I think it's God's word for a lot of us. Listen to him. If the Spirit were to just speak into your heart right now, if the Spirit was just like in a moment just released on you to just speak a word into your heart, and the word was listen to him, do you know what he would be talking about? Do you have a thing where you're just like not listening to God? And maybe something that continues to slide back across the screen, you're like, ah, there it is again. You just push it off, like changing the channel. I'm not going to think about that right now. And then it just comes back again. Like, I'm just not going to think about this right now. I'm going to keep this as uncomfortable, or it's going to cost me in ways I'm not sure, or it's not expedient for professional reasons, or I'm not sure what it would, you know, relational cost would be, and so I'm just going to continue to push it off. Listen to him. Could you just listen to him? Could you imagine that when he says something to you, he's saying the truth? He's saying it for your good. He's saying something that should be obeyed. Listen to him. And at the sound of the voice and at the command to listen, they fall down on the ground because they are afraid. And that brings us to the fourth movement in our text. Jesus sees their fear and he speaks peace to them. He sees their fear. Um, The real God, the experience of the real God is an intimidating experience. And, and, and I don't, I know that that's not like, that's not what we think. Um, but the, the experience of the real God, the God of Sinai, the God of thunder, the God of power, the God of majesty... This God has been largely replaced in our idea today, in our popular conception, and in many of our churches. And for good reason. Do you know why, do you know why we've done to God what we've done? It's because for generations and generations, God was presented as this terrifying, fear-mongering, hellfire and brimstone person who was just dangling over you a fire because he couldn't wait to destroy you. And no wonder we've gone the other direction. No wonder we've reacted the way we have. But what has been left in its place is a domesticated God, a God, a a lion with no teeth who speaks a word that has no authority and offers a way of life to you and I that we take it piecemeal. And whatever it rubs up against the the popular sentiments of our our society, we, we leave those at the side of the road because those are too hard a thing to ask. But when Ashley stood up here last week and preached from Matthew 5 to you and me about the hard law that God lays before us, like the incredible things he says about anger and divorce and and sexuality and lust and vows and whatever like these are actually like this is god's word to you and me listen to him the father says listen to him trust him and take him at his word and believe that he actually is offering life to you and not just an alternate solution that might be worth considering for a short period of time until you find something that costs less 
There is not a single person in the Bible who encounters God who does not fall on the ground. There's not a single person. That's an uncomfortable thing for us, I understand. Because most of us haven't experienced a God where we would fall on the ground for. But this is the God who speaks on the Mount of Transfiguration. And this is actually where the power then comes from when he looks at them and says, don't be afraid. If a golden retriever walked in the room right now and said, don't be afraid, we would all just say, don't worry, we weren't. (laughs) We were very excited because a talking golden retriever just walked in the room. That's what we would say. But if a lion walked in the room right now and walked right to the front of the room and looked at you and me and said, don't be afraid. Now, that's a different thing altogether. We want to have a sense that God is going to comfort us, that he's going to be merciful, that he's gracious and kind, and he is. He is. But we should never mistake that or conflate that with this idea that God is tameable or that he's predictable or that he's small or weak or easily pushed around or controlled or manipulated. He is not any of those things. He's larger and greater than time and space and all things and holds all things together by power. And in that, he looks at you and me. Out of his goodness and his greatness and out of that, he says, don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. Not because I'm predictable. Not because I'm even safe in the way that's going to feel safe to you. And I'll just say this. You... You and I need nothing other than that real God. You and I do not need a muted, neutered, blunted version of God. It's not going to do what you think it's going to do. It's not going to answer the questions that you and I wanted to answer. It's only going to satisfy small sort of uh, longings for a but it's not, it's not tied to anything large. You can't dash yourself against the rock of it and have it still stand there. The real God, the God who thunders and is greater than your imagination and my imagination, the one that is unexplainable and uncomfortable often, this is the real God who you and I need. The one is larger than the boxes we put that God in, including the box of the Bible. The God who is bigger and grander and truer and more solid and more central. And this is the God that we need. This is the real God. And this is the one whom you were made for. And he wants you to know him. He wants you to experience him. He wants you to know the sound of his voice. He wants you to know the sound of his voice and his nearness and his presence. So there's this story from, I mean, this is, this is such a, 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 a well-worn story, but here I go again. There's a story from the Chronicles of Narnia. Ah, I knew it. So the Chronicles of Narnia, if you haven't read them yet, I don't know how to help you. Um, <laughs> you've got to read them. Uh, you really do. But, and you really need to read all of them, and you need to start with the magician's nephew, but there's some controversy around that. But anyway, the, you need to read them. In the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, which is the most famous of them, there's a conversation at the very beginning between three of the children who have passed over from our earth to our world to that other world. They've come through the wardrobe. 
and they're in the house of the beavers and talking to a, a couple of beavers. And it makes a lot of sense you do, that you don't question it when you're reading the book. You go, of course they are. So they're talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they're finding out about Narnia, and they're finding out that there's this king who's been away for a long time, but this king is back, and this king's name is Aslan. And everyone, the beavers are very excited about this, and the kids don't know what to think about it yet. And this is where we pick up. You'll understand when you see him. Oh, we will see him, asks Susan, one of the girls. Why, daughter of Eve, that is why I brought you here for. I am to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I I would feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. Make no mistake about it, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're braver than most or just plain silly. Well, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe! said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I have found in my life, dashing myself against the rock of God many times, that he is not safe in the way that I would think safe should be. And he does not do things in the timetable that I wish he would. And he does not change always the things that feel so easily changeable by him. And that's an uncomfortable place to be. But I have also found, and I hope that some of you can attest to this as well, that there is something about the way he does move in my life that when he does... I never would have wanted it any other way if I had just known enough initially to ask for it that way. If I had just known how good it could be to have God as he really is. Why don't we stand up with one another for Abel? Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. I'm Matthew Brown, the parish pastor here at Trinity in Decatur. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. And you can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting our website, atltrinity.org. Thank you so much, and God bless you. Have a great week.